You're listening to audio from Stapleton Baptist Church. If you would like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit stapletonbaptistchurch.org. We pray this message blesses you. I'll invite you to open your Bibles with me to John chapter 6. And we'll be picking back up where we left off in John 6, 41. But have you ever wanted to be a part of something, but you didn't want to do what it takes to get there? Have you ever wanted the benefits of something, but didn't want to put in the work to get it? I think back to high school football days. Each year during the offseason, new people decide they want to join the football team. Maybe they're incoming freshmen, or maybe they're an upperclassman that decided they want to be a part of a team that's expected to be good that year. There's so many awesome benefits of being part of a football team, especially a good one. But without fail, every year, once the temperature starts rising and helmets start hitting, a decent number of those newcomers would suddenly disappear. They wanted the brotherhood of being a part of a team. They wanted the glory of winning a game, but they didn't want to do what it would take to get there. They didn't want to get yelled at by the coaches, run the bleachers, stand in the 100 degree heat with pads on, or get hit. The vision that they had for what it meant to be a football player didn't line up with reality. And in today's passage, we'll find that many people wanted to be on Jesus's team. They had these grand ideas of him becoming their king and overthrowing the Roman authorities, or at least he would keep healing their sick and multiplying their food. But Jesus is about to burst their bubble in a major way and reveal to them that their vision for what it means to follow him doesn't match reality. They want to follow him for what he can give them, but the life he offers isn't found in his miracles. It's found in his words. Life is found in the words of Jesus. So let's pick back up in John chapter 6, where we left off at verse 41 last week. Here's what it says in John 6, 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven. They said, is this not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The main theme Jesus begins bringing out here is that the spirit is greater than the flesh. And we'll see that that's worked out in several different ways. Remember the day before, Jesus had miraculously fed fifteen to 20,000 people. And they're ready to make him king. But now he's teaching in the synagogue and begins receiving a little bit of a different response. In fact, it says they grumbled about him. They grumbled. What a perfect word. Grumbling is a little different than complaining. It certainly involves complaining, but it's a more muted, under-the-breath sort of complaint. It isn't voiced directly because grumbling doesn't really desire to be answered. It just wants to sit in a bad-tempered discontentment. And it tells the exact reason for their grumbling. Jesus said he's the bread that came down from heaven. It's the coming down from heaven that they have a problem with. All of a sudden their minds kick into gear and they throw up their defenses. 
but wait a minute, we know this guy. This is Jesus. He's from around here. We know where he grew up. We even know who his parents are. We know where he's from, so how can he now say he's from heaven? They emphasize that word now. How does he now say that he's come down from heaven? If he really is from heaven, wouldn't he have told us this a long time ago? Why wait 30 years? They want to be able to sort this out logically. They think they found a hole in his argument, but their logic and intellect is actually creating a barrier to their belief. Their reasoning is pretty hypocritical and inconsistent as well. They were fine with the miracles of Jesus. They were fine 24 hours earlier when he was making bread and fish overflow from one little lunch. So apparently the miracles don't offend their logic and reasoning. They even demand a sign from him to prove who he is, something even as spectacular as manna from heaven. They're fine with his miracles, but not his words. They want the benefits, but not the truth. And as I was reading this, I couldn't help but think, are we tempted to do the same thing? Are there times when we want the benefits of God without believing his words? Do we want the benefits of even being a part of a church family without living by the very words that bind us together? We can't pick and choose which words of Jesus we want to accept and which ones we want to reject. Nearly all the great heresies over the centuries have arisen from someone picking and choosing the parts of the Bible that they like and rejecting the parts that they don't like or that bother them, the ones they don't understand. But truly believing in Jesus means we truly believe in all of God's Word. Because of John, as John 1 tells us, Jesus is the Word incarnate. He is the perfect Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. You can't receive Jesus without His words. His words are life. But these Jews, they throw up their defenses when He says something that offends them, and they begin to pick through it logically. They continue grumbling, but Jesus calls them on it, and He tells them, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus tells them to stop grumbling, and this is the reason why. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Verse 44 here is the negative affirmation of verse 37 that we looked at last week. Verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me. That's the positive affirmation. And now here in verse 44, it's the negative affirmation. They can't come unless the Father draws them. Without the drawing of the Father, they remain in their state of spiritual death, unable to make any movement toward God. They are blinded by their unbelief. Jesus is trying to tell them that they're wasting their time trying to figure this out logically. They knew him according to the flesh. They knew where he was from and who his parents were, but this isn't something achieved by the flesh. This is something that only the Spirit can do. He emphasizes this by quoting Isaiah 54, 13, and they will all be taught by God. That's part of a prophecy about the restoration of Israel, but Jesus is telling them that this prophecy is currently being fulfilled in real time in himself. He is one with the Father and only says what the Father says, and He is the Word who is God. So no matter how you slice it, Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy because they are being taught by God, but yet they don't receive Him. And why don't they receive Him? Because according to Jesus, they have not heard and have not learned from the Father. They haven't been drawn. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He keeps going, and it may feel like he's jerking them back and forth in his words, but he's actually building to a point. In verse 48, he reiterates his claim that we saw last week, I am the bread of life. 
And this bread is superior to the bread that the Israelites ate for 40 years in the wilderness. And the proof is that all those people who ate that bread are dead. The bread only provided temporary life. But in contrast to the manna, this bread that comes down from heaven grants eternal life. And notice twice in verse 50 and 51, the phrase comes down from heaven. That's the very phrase that got these Jews grumbling in the first place. So don't miss the significance of that phrase. Maybe you're listening to this right now and you wouldn't identify yourself as a Christian. Maybe you suspect there is a type of higher power of some sort, but he isn't knowable. Maybe you identify yourself as an agnostic. You don't really believe or disbelieve in God. You just don't think humans are capable of knowing. And partly, you would be correct. On our own, we probably couldn't understand anything about God. But the incredible truth is that we can know something about God because God has made Himself knowable. Throughout the Bible, God makes Himself known to people and reveals Himself to us through the Scriptures. And then the ultimate revelation of God is in the man, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 describes Him as the image of the invisible God. And that in Him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God is knowable because He has made Himself known through Jesus Christ. It's one of John's key themes from the very beginning of the gospel that the God... The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The incarnation is mind-blowing, that the Son of God would willingly condescend to our level, take on flesh just like us, and experience all the pain, heartache, and problems of life that we do. That makes no sense. Until you remember John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. The glory of God broke into the darkness of our world on a rescue mission, and it was all based on the perfect love of God and His unchanging character. Jesus is the bread come down from heaven, and this bread brings eternal life. But here's where things get weird for the Jews Jesus was talking to. At the end of verse 51, He says, "...and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh." Jesus has been working them up to this point, but now he takes the metaphor one step further, and the Jews can't handle it. So let's pick back up in verse 52 to see how they respond. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So earlier they had been grumbling. But now it's moved to disputing. Jesus' statements have amped them up. They're outraged. They're offended by this statement and want to know, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? But Jesus doubles down and goes even further and tells them if they don't eat his flesh and don't drink his blood, they have no life in them. Now, let's cut these Jews just a little bit of slack because on the surface, the words Jesus is saying sound absolutely crazy. It sounds like he's promoting cannibalism. 
And the mention of drinking blood would have been particularly offensive to the Jews because the law of Moses clearly forbids drinking blood or eating meat that still has blood in it. But of course, by now in the Gospel of John, we should recognize this pattern of people misunderstanding Jesus. From Nicodemus to the Jews in the temple to the Samaritan woman, and now here, they miss the deeper meaning, the spiritual meaning behind his words. So what is Jesus saying here? How can he say they must eat his flesh and drink his blood? This completes the metaphor of the bread of life. Bread is meant to be consumed. And if Jesus is the bread of life, then eventually he'll be consumed in a sense. His body is ultimately consumed on the cross. His body and his blood are given on the cross. His body is broken and beaten and pierced. His blood is shed and spilt. And feeding is believing. We feed on the bread of life by believing in the bread of life. And that on the cross, Jesus substituted his perfect life for our wickedness and sin. He took the guilt of our sin and shame upon himself and bore the wrath of God in our place. He was the sacrifice to atone for our sins. And the proof that his sacrifice was sufficient payment and accepted by God is the fact that on the third day, God raised him from the dead. And we feed on that bread by believing in that incredible saving work of Jesus Christ. And make no mistake, there is no middle ground here. John is very plain in his gospel and the I am statements. They leave no middle ground or room for doubt. You either feed on the bread of life or you don't. It says those that don't have no life in them. There's no life because they remain spiritually dead. But here's what it says about those who do feed and believe. Actually, four things are true about them. They have eternal life. They will be raised and they abide in Jesus and he in them and they live forever. Notice verse 54. It doesn't say whoever feeds will have eternal life. It says whoever feeds has eternal life. The life that Jesus offers isn't just something in the future. It, of course, will be fully realized in a whole new way then, but he gives us life now. He regenerates us. He brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life, just like we symbolize in baptism. And like the prophet Ezekiel prophesied, he removes our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. He transforms our desires. Eternal life begins here and now. Then there's the promise again that we'll be raised up. For the Christian, death in this life is but a gateway to being resurrected with Christ. Death has lost its sting. Then Jesus says, those who abide in him and he in them. This concept of abiding is one that we'll flesh out more as we continue in John but it emphasizes a closeness and oneness in our relationship with him. There is a relationship there with depth like no other. And then the fourth thing is that whoever feeds will live forever. Eternal life begins now and after being raised up will continue forever. And it's a perfect life with God. No more pain, sickness, sorrow, or death. What glory awaits those that believe in him and how incredible that this comes as a free gift from God to those who believe. It's so simple. Jesus says, whoever believes has eternal life. He is speaking of the life they so desperately need. But unfortunately, Jesus is describing a different path than the one the Jews had been envisioning. Let's pick up back in verse 60 to see how they respond to this glorious truth. John 6, 60 says, When many of the disciples heard this, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, 
Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, thinking of this chapter as a whole, realize that just 24 hours earlier, Jesus had miraculously fed fifteen to 20,000 people. And they were so excited and whipped up into a frenzy that they are ready to force him to be their king. But now many are turning back and no longer follow him. And notice, these aren't the Jewish leaders. It calls this group disciples. These are people that have been following Jesus around for one reason or another and had at least some level of commitment to him, even if it was just based on the miracles or the hope that he would be their king. The words Jesus is saying aren't matching what they had envisioned for a king or a messianic ruler. Jesus isn't meeting their expectations of a savior and the fragility of their faith is exposed. Just like poor construction is exposed by a hard storm, this flimsy faith crumbles under their doubt. They wanted the miracles and the power, but they didn't want his words. They didn't want the truth, but truth matters. We live today in a time of relativism. Absolute truth is not popular. To even suggest moral absolutes or especially theological absolutes will probably get you labeled closed-minded or a bigot at best. But truth matters. John's gospel does a great job of showing that belief in something other than the truth cannot hold up. It eventually gives way under the pressures of life, the temptations of the world, and our fleshly desires. And I want to exhort you, Christian, and us as a church, to make sure that we believe what is true according to God's Word. And in our media-driven world, we have to actively be on guard against false truth all the time. There are so many outlets for receiving information constantly coming in to our paths. Even right now, you're listening to this online and in a matter of seconds could search and discover a thousand other different teachings about God. But I can guarantee you that not all are according to the truth of Scripture. There are preachers that are preaching things other than the truth. There are many books in Christian sections of the bookstore or on Amazon that promote things other than the truth. There are even many worship songs that sound amazing and are emotionally moving but are not according to the truth. Just because someone has a platform or a microphone doesn't mean what they're saying is the truth. And above all else, I want to be a biblically faithful preacher. But church, you should never accept anything I say as truth unless it's in in accordance with the truth of God's word. In Acts 17, the Berean Christians give us a perfect example of a commitment to the truth. Paul and Silas come to them preaching the gospel. And in Acts 17, 11, it says, And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. It says they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Paul was probably the greatest missionary, preacher, church planner there ever was. But these Bereans don't just take his word for it. They examine the scriptures to affirm if what Paul is saying is actually true. So we also need to be people committed to the truth of God's word. 
So many of the disciples abandon Jesus because they aren't interested in the truth. But what about the 12 disciples Jesus specifically called? Here's what it says in verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered him, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Picture the scene for Jesus and and his disciples. What a roller coaster of emotion it must have been for those twelve. They've been following Jesus for over a year now. They've seen him work all kinds of wonders and miracles. And the day before, they're surrounded by enormous crowds hoping to make Jesus their king. And there's no doubt that these disciples would have been pretty excited. Their master, their teacher is the Messiah. And they're probably thinking they're going to be the first in line to the kingdom. But now, just a day later, they're seeing the crowds thin out. People are turning away offended and disappointed. And Jesus turns to them and says, do you want to go away as well? Jesus is challenging them. He isn't begging or trying to persuade them. He's challenging them to make a choice. And Peter, who's naturally the spokesman, speaks up for the group, says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I love that answer. I love that answer because it doesn't ridicule the people who have left. It may even admit that they're a little confused But even in the midst of that, there's a breakthrough here because their faith remains in Jesus' words, even though their outward circumstances have changed. The crowds are leaving, but they hang on to the fact that life is found in Jesus' words. And they say they have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Do you see that pattern? They believed and they came to know. They, they believed even before they fully understood. And that's good because if you waited until you fully understood, then you're going to be waiting a long time because this isn't something achieved by the flesh. As Jesus pointed out in verse 63, it is the, is the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. This is evidence of a true disciple here in the words of Peter. There's two marks of a true disciple in his words. First, there's a confession He recognizes Jesus accurately for who he is, the Holy One of God. He isn't just a wise man or a teacher or a healer or a magician or a rebel. He is the Holy One, the Messiah, the Son of God. And secondly, there's a commitment. To whom shall we go? There's no other option. Peter is stating a commitment to Jesus even while everyone else walks away. And this is evidence that he's coming to Jesus for Jesus. He isn't coming to Jesus to see miracles or to have his belly filled or to see Rome overthrown. He's coming to Jesus for Jesus. And finally, notice Jesus says, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? And then John, writing from his perspective, tells us that Jesus was speaking of Judas, the one who would betray him. Jesus knew from the beginning that one of his own, one of his own twelve disciples, he specifically called would betray him, and he knew exactly who it was. Yet it was part of God's plan, and Jesus does only what the Father tells him because he came on a rescue mission. And God would use even the wickedness of Judas to accomplish the mission of Jesus ending up on the cross, and there truly fulfilling his title of bread of life. 
For on that cross, Jesus would be consumed. And the invitation to feed on the bread of life is still open today. Jesus says, whoever believes in me has eternal life. Whoever. But those that don't, they have no life in them. This is the plain words of Jesus. And if you're listening to this and have never placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then Jesus would tell you that you have no life in you. You're spiritually dead and your problem for sin has no remedy. But the invitation to believe is there. And I pray that today you would come to Jesus, that you'd believe in his act upon the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, and in so doing, you will be saved. And I pray that you would make that decision right now. And if you do, please let us know so we can celebrate with you and serve you as you begin your faith journey. In church, let us hold firm to the truth of Jesus Christ and make sure our vision of Jesus and his kingdom is in line with the truth of God's word. And may we never waver knowing that in him we have found eternal life. Amen.